Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are here discussing one of Karen's picks. It is Napier's Bones by Daryl Murphy. Yes, now Napier's Bones by Daryl Murphy um, came to my attention really at last year's World Fantasy Convention. I knew that it had been nominated for an Aurora Award, that's the Canadian SF Awards. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, was just, I was just massively curious because we really don't get enough math fight. We really don't have enough books that are more based on, you know, doing cool, interesting things with math. You can get quite a few short stories, I found. Maybe it's something that tends to lend itself more in the short form. But to actually develop a system that's math-based and kind of sustain it for a full book is not something that you seem to see a lot of. So I was very curious to see what he was doing. And I have to admit that it's one of those books that the cover is very gorgeous, you you look you see there's um someone's hand and you can see the bones and the and the capillaries inside and the veins inside and the obvious thing of course being the concept of actually seeing the bones but we should point out for those of you who do not know that Napier's bones refers to a kind of um, device used for calculation kind of like an abacus with rods that have numbers on and so forth and oh no it's, it's it's so much cooler than just an abacus. <laughs> it's. I said kind of like kind of. I have to okay. admit. So, so one of the things about this book that I appreciated was um, he would mention something, and then I would go to Wikipedia or Google or wherever and look something up, and I'd be like, "Wow, that's so cool! I am glad I know that exists now." <laughs> yes, yes. It is. It is in fact um, one of the nice things about this book. One of the things that. Um, that the genre really lends itself to, and this book does really well, is it has all of these references, these layers to it, that you could just, um, it, I mean, there, there are no footnotes, there are no appendices, but there could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you'd wanted really to double the length of it. Yes, so, so there are all kinds of things where you're like, is that true? And then you go look it up and you find out, that is true, and it's really cool, you know. So, so there's all kinds of things for you if you are a sports fan or historian or you like poetry or, well, of course, if you're a mathematician. There's there's really just a lot in here. And, of course, we're going to do our attempt at a summary <laughs> while interjecting commentary along the way. An, 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 an annotated I, summary. Yes, I'm going to dive right into it because it is, it is, it is a slender-ish book. Um, not like, you know, it's not doorstopper epic, epic fantasy style, but there's a lot of story in here. So we immediately get dropped into almost like immediate action. Um, our main character, his name is Dom, and he's something called a numerate. He can see and manipulate numbers, and he, he can do various things, both, I say, both magical and mundane. So he goes into a desert, which we later find out is somewhere in Utah, and he has this strange confrontation, and the whole scene, the way it's described, the first thing, of course, that came to my mind was the Matrix, because he can literally see the numbers. He can see the numbers, you know, they, they're flocking together, they're sort of winging across the landscape, they're bundling together for an attack. He can pull them to himself for defense. There, there's all kinds of interesting stuff happening, and this is something that ordinary people cannot see. To them, it's just an invisible world, but for him, the world is literally teeming 
with numbers. He can see them oozing out of things and absorbing things and flying up into the air and distilling out of the air and everything. By the way, I love the description of a numerical ecology. Um, it seemed, that seemed like a really nice touch with world building. Yes, yes. It's, it's very complicated. It's not one of these. Um, it's not a magical system where the magic sort of comes out of nowhere and is limitless. Uh, it's still kind of a magical system, but, uh, but okay. Uh, hold on. I, I didn't say it wasn't a magical system. I said it isn't a limitless magical okay, system. Okay, there you go. Oh, I'm, I'm totally 100% yeah. with that. <laughs> so so it, it, is, it is very much a, a bounded system. The, the numbers, um, they, have to, they have to come from somewhere, they have to go to somewhere, and you can see that there are limitations on Dom's powers because he has to respect the, the laws of this number ecology, as we say. So... He, there's there's this confrontation. Um, it's explosive. He gets knocked out, and, and then he wakes up on a bus with no memory of how he got there. And the bus is traveling through this the city, this, this um, large town or small city. He doesn't know what's going on. And then he's he suddenly realizes that um, there's this entity in his head who actually communicates to him by sort of taking over his mouth and talking to him out loud. And by the way, um, he, he becomes totally accepting of this situation really quickly, which I... Well, he said, he said well, yeah, so I've read about things like you. <laughs> but so, I've read so many stories where the, the protagonist, you know, goes through a fairly realistic sequence of, oh my God, this is totally not okay, that I actually kind of appreciate it when I read a, a you know, a fantasy novel where someone goes, oh yeah, I've read about this. Okay, I'm good. You know, and <laughs> yes. sort of skips over that bit. Yes, and and actually, Dom is just far more concerned about what happened back in the desert. Right. So, what did happen, in fact, was that there were uh, a number of other people involved. They were all going after a particular relic. Yes, they were. They were looking for something, a kind of a, a mathematical artifact that possesses something they call mojo. And this is part of the the numbers ecology. Apparently, the the the, numer- the numeracy power tends to concentrate in particular objects that tend to be associated with um, with numeric coincidences. Yeah. So later on, for example, you'll find that Dom has a, a baseball. Actually, he has more than one baseball. And he, he picks up these things in terms of, say, um, the, what was it? The Okay, so one of them was it, Mark McGuire's 61st home run ball that was also, that happened to be hit on the day that Mark McGuire's father turned 61. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for detailing that. I didn't remember the exact numbers. But yeah, so he, he takes he takes all these um you know, these little freaky um coincidences and um he'll he'll get the home run ball from for that or he'll get the hockey puck for the last game of somebody other in a particular year. And and he does this thing where um and, and to me it's interesting because of course sports itself kind of runs on superstitions. Yeah. There are, there's all kinds of superstitious activities associated with sport anyway. So it almost makes sense. Um, there's a kind of a, a narrative sense to having mojo compiling in these um in these objects. Well, but it's not only are, sports objects because it's not always sports objects, but before we leave that, I do want to say it's such a great dramatization of the intersection between especially with baseball, you get this intersection between superstition and statistics. Yes. You see the same thing in football, you know, they've got all these, I mean, they've got official professional data miners who go into the statistics of these sports, and yet everyone's still super superstitious about it. Yep, yep. So, yeah, it's a nice touch, but no, Dom is into sports. Other numerate, um, you know, numerate capable people uh, treat, get their relics in different ways. 
Yes, and but he does also have he laid, he managed to lay hands on the um, some internal wires from the Apollo thirteen spaceship. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice which, touch. Which was which was a nice touch, yes. So so it's not it's definitely not holy sports artifacts, but that that seems to be more his thing. So what he um, I should so as I said, there's something like that in the desert that they were looking for. And when I say they, Dom was there, but um, the the entity in his head, his name is Billy, and he's called an adjunct, and he's a kind of a, a numbers ghost. He represents the mind of a numerate who's who's died years before, but somehow managed to to save their, their consciousness and being in a set of numbers, which then gets passed on to the mind of a living numerate. So his living numerate, who was his host, um, was in the desert also with him looking for this thing. And, and Dom came along and apparently they can also track you by your numbers. So you're supposed to try to do things to, to keep your numbers low so they can't be noticed. But Dom's were just a little bit more noticeable. So um, somebody saw them and attacked, but, but um, Billy and his host... Were, were ahead and, and, and got severely attacked and his host died and Billy knew that Dom was around so he just flipped himself into Dom's, into Dom's body. And then when Dom got knocked out, he was able to kind of um, seize control, get Dom out of there onto a bus <laughs> and into this city outside the desert. And the, but the entity that um, they were um, kind of battling with, the other person they were battling with, we, we learn a bit more about them later on. This is, they knew it was another numerate, but they didn't have a lot of information as yet. So <clears throat> it's, it's, actually, it's actually so much is happening that one thing you begin to realize from very early on is that this is a book that just has a lot of exposition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so there's this bit where it's just like talking going on between Billy and Dom. Like, you know, what's happening? And Billy explains a bit, and then Billy actually is is not fully um, in, in he's he's actually lost some memories. He can't remember who he used to be when he was living. So there's an aspect to which Billy also has to be told things, and then because as Karen said, each numerate has particular ways of doing things. Sometimes Dom has to explain why he's doing things that he's doing. Well, and don't forget, so, next they meet a, a numerate who's kind of a newbie. Yes. As essentially a waitress in this Utah town mm-hmm. that they're in. And so then they get to explain everything to her. Yes. Which is a, a tried so and... a nice triad of exposition. Right, yeah. So everyone's explaining things to everyone else. And <laughs> it's perhaps not always the most elegantly done. Yes. But, you but, know, that's a grand old tradition when you're trying to, to explain yeah. things to people in a world like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have, I've definitely seen the, as you know, Bob thing done a lot worse other places. Mm-hmm. He does at least keep it so that, you know, the person who's getting things explained to really has no way of knowing what, you know, they, they need this explanation. Right. It's, it's always, it always works in universe. He never, he never forgets. So then what happens with, um, with Jenna is that is, who's um, the she newbie, has, the newbie girl. She was a newbie girl, yes. She, there are two things about her that are very important. Um, yes, she has this numerate ability, but she also has this some sort of quality about her where sometimes there's like a little blink and Dom sees himself like looking out through her eyes, almost as if he'd become an adjunct in her head. But when this happens, she doesn't notice it. Billy doesn't notice anything. So he kind of, at first he kind of keeps it quiet because he's not really quite sure what's going on. 
Uh, also... And then when he mentions that they, they sort of all like, oh, we didn't notice anything, and then it sort of gets brushed over for a while. Sidetracked, yeah. Oh, there's three important things about Jenna, and the third one is that her mom had disappeared. Oh, yes, her mom had disappeared. But no, the second thing, which I haven't said yet, because um, I put the numeracy and the I thing kind of together. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Because they, they are kind of connected near the end. Uh, she has a car. <laughs> that too. <laughs> they, Very handy. And you realize that their they're, they're numbers seeking them, that's another thing, because as I said, their numbers can be tracked, but somebody who is, is out to get them can actually send numbers to seek them. So we have, again, this amazing visual of, of them. First of all, they have to be careful. When, he, when Dom hands over money, he tries to blur the serial numbers so that they can't be traced to him. When he goes to a payphone, he, he does something, you know, he does, he does some little trick, again, so that things can't be traced back. Although, again, money, not necessarily their problem, since with these, this numeratability, they can kind of hack ATMs. Yes, but even when they're handing over money, they can, the uh, numerate can trace the numbers to them. Right, and then he does the same thing with license plates. Yes, he, he can blur the license plates and so on. So they, um, Jenna is sufficiently interested and curious that she wants Dom to teach her how to handle her um, very fledgling numerate skills, numeracy skills. And they, they need a car out of there. So they all come to some sort of mutual agreement and hightail it out of there. She tries to... Um, to leave a message to, to call to her, um, I guess it's her flatmate or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she gets, or was it her sister? Oh, dear, I forgot. Okay, but she basically calls to where she lives to say that she's going off and don't worry about her and so on. And almost immediately, they get tracked. So they kind of freak out and, and hightail it out of there before um, something comes down upon them. And I have so, to admit, the, the descriptions of the numbers in, in these attack defense situations are really well done. Yes, it's, do, like, it's almost like crows coming that's down. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was like flocks of black birds. That's how I always <laughs> yeah. picture it. Yeah, yeah, really, really cool. And, and the thing is, okay, so they're basically, they're, they're in Utah, but then they decide, Don decides he wants to go to Edmonton. And um, so they have a kind of a cross-the-border road trip thing, and, and, and cool things happen, which kind of help to expand the, the concept a bit more, help you understand more about the, the universe in which the numeracy occurs. Mm-hmm. So and one of my favorites, one of my favorite scenes is when um, Dom traps a flock of search numbers in the maze of table salt. Yeah, yeah, I've actually I've seen, seen that. that. I, I had seen that done before. Um, You're joking. Oh. Well, wait, uh, wasn't there, was there one from Nalo Hopkinson that pointed out there was a legend where there was a creature that could be deterred that oh, way? Yes, of course, of course, of course. The, the, you spill salt or spill rice and they've got to stop and pick up every green. Yeah, they've got to stop and either count them or pick them up. And then um, yeah. uh, P- Peter Watts uh, in Blind Sight had a, had a quirk of a, a particular kind of psychology that, that worked that way. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're quite right, you're quite right. So it's funny because there's a, a folktale sensibility to that, but his was basically, well, they're search numbers, so of course they have to stop and count every green mm-hmm. of, of salt. <laughs> you know, that kind of just makes mathematical sense in a weird way. So, um, so yeah, so, that, so there, there are lots of little scenes like that, and, and it's, it's quite fantastic. But Edmonton, now, Edmonton is, 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 first of all, it's a special city. By the it's way... A city Mm, yeah. Can I just interject? The only other person I've seen really highlight Edmonton in their fiction is uh, Minister Faust. Really? And, okay. I didn't oh know my that. god! If you and I ever get a chance to read one of my all-time favorite books, Coyote, um, 
Oh my god. Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad. Well, I'm telling you, the title alone. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it rocks so hard. And I've had so much trouble getting people to pay attention to, to him. Like, two of his books I've loved all to death. But he is an Edmonton-based black Canadian author, and he's amazing. So, okay, mm-hmm. moving on. That, that was my only experience with Edmonton before reading this book. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you raised his name because um, years ago, somebody was drawing him to my attention. I haven't managed to get to his works yet, so I'll take this as a, as a good reminder. Right, so Edmonton, um, the specialist about Edmonton is that the, the streets are, are not named, they're numbered. So there's a, a grid of, of streets, I guess, in, in central Edmonton that are just numbers. And, and for a numerate, this has a special quality where the sort of the, the numbers sort of evaporate and filter up into the air and cover it like a, a, a haze. So, so there's something about it that makes, that makes um, Edmonton very special if you're a numerate, especially a numerate who is running and hiding from search numbers from, from a severe, from a very powerful antagonist. So they're in Edmonton and they go to get... Um, I think he's looking for more mojo. Well, a couple things happen, sorry. Um, they, there are a couple of, of other bits of mojo that he picks up. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the Apollo um, 13 wire. He uses that earlier. He shares it with Jenna. Um, they, they meet, um, they meet a, a, a transient, um, somebody who's on the streets, who uh, appears to be having mental issues, but they realize part of his problem is that he's slightly numerate. So he can kind of see the numbers. He can't really fully manipulate them, but I guess it's, it's just enough to make him feel like you know he's he's you know probably hallucinating or whatever. And he has in his possession uh, an artifact with a huge amount of mojo, and it's a hockey puck. And you must remember this hockey puck because it's going to do marvelous things later on. In the book. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so anyway, Don goes to pick up. Um, something from a, a, a safety deposit box and, and basically has this other safety deposit box like practically leap out at him, <laughs> you know, desperate to meet his acquaintance, the contents. And um, as a result of that, he sort of gets Shanghaied. Um, and the person who Shanghai's him um, is connected to, to this, this other artifact that, that was sort of so almost self-aware that it was leaping out at him. And this, this um, guardian, uh, let's call it, of this artifact, he is a defrocked Catholic priest, and he is full of exposition. He's yeah, got thank some God for exposition for you. <laughs> he is Father Exposition. Yes. So he is able to tell them that the person who has been chasing them, the person who, you know, almost, um, you know, did away with all of them in the desert and who's been chasing them ever since, is in fact a, a complex hybrid they had made reference earlier to John Napier and said that he, sorry, John Napier, mathematician of the um, kind of, I guess, late, talk, we're talking 16th century. 16th century, yeah. A little bit of 17th century, but very early. Um, Scottish mathematician. And, and, and this is a historical figure. This is a historical figure from a time when science and magic were a little bit blurred. So you will, in fact, be able to go and research John Napier and find that he was... Um, Yes, he was a mathematician, but he was rumored to be a magician, and he yeah, was supposed to dabble. He was rumored at times and, to be a necromancer. Yes, so there are all kinds of freaky things just swirling around the history of the actual real John Napier. So he's but an then, excellent. But excellent he's choice. not the only adjunct involved in this entity. He's not, because apparently the rumor goes that he was hosting as an adjunct Archimedes. 
Yeah, and I never felt like that paid off as much as it should have. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, there. if Archimedes had survived to this present day, I kind of feel like he should have trumped <laughs> Napier at least a little bit. Well, he came across as a very gentle soul, you know, he not did. sufficiently, yeah. So, and so anyways, the idea person. was that the reason why Napier was so successful in his time is because he had Archimedes in his head, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, and he was, he was just expanding on Archimedes' genius. But now we have, Napier has become an adjunct, still has his adjunct, and they have now taken over a living host who turns out to be Jenna's mother. Like you do. Yep. <laughs> but considering that this is a book that has already showed us that coincidences have power, right. our belief remains completely suspect. Our disbelief remains completely suspended, and um, and we should point out that in this sort of triple consciousness of Jenna's mother living, um, Napier and Archimedes, Napier is powerful, in control, and very much the bad guy. Yes. So the the ex priest basically says, you guys got to run, you got to take this MacGuffin, it's the main MacGuffin, um, you got to take this MacGuffin, you got to go to Scotland. Yeah, and, and again, thank, you, you kind of feel like, oh, thank goodness, now, now you know, the plot has a, a direction. <laughs> it had a direction before, the direction was Edmonton. <laughs> but yeah, they were kind of fleeing something they weren't quite sure about, so yes, in that sense, it kind of begins to coalesce, this is, this is the pivot point, this is the hinge point in the book. And it's, it's um, so he hands him passports and tickets to Glasgow, and you know he says, you know, you have to retrieve a few more other MacGuffins or objects of power or whatever you want to call them. Plot you coupons. Will then... <laughs> Say again. Plot coupons. Th- thank you. That's, 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 yes. that's one of the, ter- the the terms of art for for this kind of thing. <laughs> like that. I'm gonna remember that one. So they have to yes collect these plot coupons. And, and assemble them into something that is going to allow them to defeat Napier. But the catch-22 is that Napier is probably going to be following them, and he's, he's going to be at his strongest in Scotland because that's his home ground. But, you know, you've got to suspend your disbelief a little bit for that. It's yeah, kind of funny. Did, the, the, did bits, the, priest, the bits that... Sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Did the priest actually tell him what the artifact was, or did it, does that get revealed later? Do you know, he didn't. He didn't. Okay, so I won't, just, I won't just, mention it. I think then. he kind of, he kind of, you know, made it clear that this was something that was very old, that had sort of come over from the British Isles, um, that was very powerful and dangerous and had to be kept safe. But he didn't go into detail, and in a way, you could understand why he didn't at the time because it was actually, and um, well, the whole the whole podcast is spoilers, but I almost feel as if I want to draw this out a bit. But it's <laughs> it's a part of a larger thing, right? Right. So so in a way, I understand why he couldn't fully explain to them what they had because it was only a part. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. So so then we get to the second part of the book, and the whole chase factor is just like ramping up because now the numbers are really after them. But we first we have a completely hilarious um, scenario of Dom trying to, to drive um, on the left hand of the road of jet lag, <laughs> which doesn't go well, to the point where um, some, some benign numbers get so frightened that they basically coalesce into a sentient being and say, look, let me help you with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For one, I, I totally, that whole scene where he's trying to navigate England when he's completely jet-lagged, I was like, oh my god, I've so been there. You have? Oh, dear. 
<laughs> of course, it's a flip side for me because left is what I'm accustomed to. And oh, roundabouts. Okay. Left and roundabouts. So I was laughing at, not with. Yeah, no, I was <laughs> laughing with. I, no, I, I was like, oh my God. I really felt like, especially the whole second half of the book, I was like, this author must have taken, a, taken this trip to the British Isles and is now writing it off for tax purposes. Yes. <laughs> putting it in this book because it, it really felt like he'd been there, like he was reporting. But he did. He did. Did you, did you not read the acknowledgments? I may not have read the acknowledgments. Always read the acknowledgments, readers. It's very crucial. <laughs> oh, no, I did. I did. I did read them, but, you know, after. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, no, it, it, it absolutely had that feeling. He'd really been there, and I really appreciated that. And, um, <laughs> and, and also, I loved Arithmos, the, the sentient yes, numbers the, being. The, the, and they had a nice little discussion about, about the moral implications of numbers being able to be self-aware. Yeah, because they had, a, they had a nice discussion about it. I'm not sure they ever followed it through to its natural Yeah, they don't. They don't. It's just sort of like, we are now aware that we have to ponder this. And it does, it does in a way get followed through because the whole point is Napier's land is Scotland and the numbers there, many of them are on his side. Yeah. But the, the self-aware number, Arithmos, seems at least to realize that because of, of the way Napier operates in that he likes to control things. Um, he would rather ally himself with somebody who will at least stop and think, hmm, maybe I should be a bit more uh, equitable how I, you know, use numbers because they're, they're self-aware. You know, I'm not, I'm not just, this is, this is not like livestock or something that I'm, that I'm working with. So I think, I think that that was actually what helped Arithmos sort of um, kind of be more on Dom, um, Dom's side, Dom and Billy and Jenna. Mm-hmm. The, 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 that kind of moral difference between them and Napier. So, um, by the way, by, by now Napier has um, um, sort of pressed gang Jenna's mother into also hopping on a plane and carrying them all over to Scotland. So um, Dom and Jenna and Bell- Billy only have a, a little bit of reprieve. Um, and I say reprieve guardedly because they're still being kind of assaulted whenever possible by um, by. The, the numbers in Scotland. <laughs> no, the, the whole, I, they barely get a chance to breathe the whole book. I mean, the whole book yeah. really is one. And, one. And, they, and they love to manifest themselves in the form of driving rain quite a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, well, and that makes sense for Scotland, doesn't it? It does. It totally does. Especially the driving rain bit. But, um, but yeah, so they go off to get these various MacGuffins and, uh, and go through some, some pretty nice locations. One of them being this sort of, old, this ancient, gnarly forest, um, and, and there's, the, the description really becomes very beautiful um, when, when, he, when he starts talking about some of these places. And they had a badger for a guide. That was the <laughs> point where I was like, ah, there were, I, 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 I felt that there were a couple of times where I was reminded of Shadow the Torturer. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the structure where it kind of begins very pragmatic, in, in the case of Napier's Bones, pragmatic and contemporary, where you recognize everything. And then you get to the second part and it becomes kind of slightly surreal. That was what I was feeling. I was like, you have a badger. The badger's guide you. <laughs> see, see, by that point, I had actually, the, the way I had shifted my reading strategy was that I had decided I was in an urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. And it, especially the way it's structured that we're in recognizably our world, but there's this parallel kind of magical um, a universe that these characters have access to that normal people don't. 
Mm-hmm. And at, once I decided I was reading an urban fantasy, um, for one, it, it all made sense. And for two, the badger was just like, oh, yeah, okay. No, the badger threw me. Not in a, not in a really kind of throw me up the story kind of threw me. Right, right. But in the sense that uh, up to that moment, um, there had still been a kind of a, 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 a sort of a unspoken agreement that the numbers, the numeracy, even if there were magical things in appearance, there was still this, this sort of fundamental in-universe logic that was far, far stronger to me, far, far more down-to-earth than any kind of magical system. So when you actually have a badger who's sufficiently sentient to be a guide, I start. I do start questioning. I know that the numbers can still do stuff like that, but but because the whole atmosphere has changed. You said it's it's an urban fantasy, but by then they're in the countryside. They're in the countryside. They're in an old wood, and it begins to take on the sense of a fable or a fairy tale. For for me, urban fantasies often will hit that kind of. Um, th- there'll be an older space outside of the actual urban setting. Ah, fair and, enough. Uh, yeah, for me, I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is that part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. Okay. We had our badgers. We also had sleeping giants that were awakened. That was giants. cool. There's just they hands cool down. Giants. That was cool. They were cool giants. They were and there briefly, but I appreciate them very much. <laughs> and I love the part where basically the the Arithmos, the numbers, was telling, again, some exposition, telling Dom about the history of why these figures were called giants and blah, blah. And, and Dom's like, oh, come on, giants? Yeah, right. And, and Arithmos is like, wait, you've spent your entire life manipulating numbers, and you're talking to me right now, and you have trouble believing that these are animate giants? <laughs> hey, guys, wake up! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does, it does sort of make you... Well, well, the, what, well, what it does do for me is that, as, I, as, as we said before, historically... You have Napier of that era where science and magic are blurred. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, what Arithmus does at that moment is he basically says to Dom, you're going to have to blur that line again. Yeah. You're going to have to blur that line again because right now you're still very much holding on to what I'm doing is scientific. And, you know, now that you're encountering things that you don't understand or, you know, you, you want to say, well, you know, um, this, 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 this is magical, but it's, it's, it's sort of tied together in a way. So... Okay, hang on. We kind of jumped ahead a bit because before the giants, we actually managed to pull together all the artifacts, you know, not with a little trouble along the way. It's not all smooth sailing, but we pulled together the artifacts and we're about to assemble them together into the main MacGuffin. Ah, yes. And Arithmus warns them, you know, the moment you assemble this, Napier's probably going to be right down our necks. So, you know, we're going to have to... Um, Dom, uh, you're, you're probably going to have to just zoom off as quickly as possible and Jenna will be safe because they'll be after you <laughs> and um, that's the way we're going to work this. So what he actually assembles is um, the Napier's Bones device. The bit that they brought with him from, from, from North America is basically the box and the bits that they've been picking up have been the actual rods, the bits they call the bones. And the creepy bit is that this is a very special version of Napier's bones because the rods were made from Napier's actual bones. Right, the bones of his own dead body. Yes. Which, again, was so cool. And, and let me just say, again, everyone should go wiki Napier's bones because it's a fascinating way. It's, it's a way of algorithmically multiplying large numbers without a calculator or doing it out by hand. And, mm-hmm. and seriously, wiki's got a good rundown of how it works, and it's a brilliantly elegant 
bit of analog al- algorithmic design. I, I was just like, my jaw just dropped. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 no, actually, I have after to read that in detail, no, I was I was just like, oh, okay, good, it exists, and I was just back to the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, and in fact, the only problem is that after reading the Wikipedia entry on what Napier's bones actually were, I had a little trouble thinking of him as the bad guy. Oh, because I was so like, that's just beautiful. Well, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going to challenge you slightly. We have to be careful about terms like bad guy. The reason I say that is because Napier is still very much portrayed as a man of his era. He, um, he was anti-papist, which meant that he really hated the Catholic Church and put certain protections on the portion of the artifact that was in North America so that the ex-priests in his group that were trying to keep it safe couldn't retrieve it. Um, he, he had... I think he had very strong convictions and, and as so often happened in that era when, um, you know, various learned men rose to positions of, of power, not only within their field, but to a certain extent in the, also gaining political notice, they really get to the point where they think they should be ruling things. And it's not a bad guy thing. It's really a sense of, well, no, I am a genius. So clearly I should be doing stuff. I don't know. So that... That was more the impression I got from him. So it's bad in the context, especially the contemporary world, because they're like, you can't just use people like that. You can't just, you know, take over this woman's mind and body and, and have her move you around. You can't just use self-aware numbers like this. So I, I have no, I can still see him as the bad guy for a given value of bad. Well, certainly he, his function is as the villain of this story. Mm-hmm. And, or or, or put, it, put it this way, his function is as the person whose interests do not align with those of the, uh, that we choose to call heroes. Shall we compromise on antagonist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is I never necessarily, and check me on this, but I never necessarily got a good feeling for what his motivation was once he, once he attained his goal, what he was going to do with the power that he would attain. He was going to rule the world. That was the point. He yeah, was see, and again, to- we're right back to Bond villain. <laughs> no, no, no. He was going to control all aspects of numeracy. Back to Bond villain. And, no, hold it. You hold on to that Bond villain thing because in the end, isn't that what Jenna ends up doing? Oh, but she, but, okay, so uh-huh. on with the plot summary. On with the plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay when our heroes do it, is what you're saying. But, anyway. but that's, that's the way urban fantasy works. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so here we are. We've assembled the MacGuffin. We've put the bones into their slots. And the cool thing is, you spin the bones, and it becomes a teleportation device. Like you do. See, it was yes. great. <laughs> and, and I'm cool with that, because then we get, we're really ramping up the chase scene now. In fact, Every time you think that, that the chase, you know, it can't get any more of this. This, this is no teleportation chase scene. Yep. So we have Dom bouncing around, Dom and Billy still in his head, sorry, bouncing around um, the UK. And, and Mostly, like, like, they bounce into London and like the stone lions start to animate and go after them. It's awesome. But, but, and here's the puck, the hockey puck. It creates a sheet of ice so that Dom can like skate away faster. <laughs> and at one point, he like freezes a path on the Thames, and, and the and the and the lion is coming after him, and and the the lion sort of sort of set into the 
the bridge or the path side, you know, are kind of cheering on their colleague, but the rings in their mouths make it muffled. There are little touches like that I really like. And then the griffins, the griffin statues for some reason are neutral. Right, so right. A griffin, and then- a griffin comes and saves him. Um, and and um, advises him to go to Westminster Abbey because there's some there's some religious slash numerological protections that will keep him safe for a while. Which because- again it throws things straight back into folklore. By the time you've got to you know consecrated ground having now you see here's a funny thing they gave an explanation for that and here you are putting that into the folklore box but this made sense to me because Napier was also um, religion was another one of his things and a lot of the religious rituals have aspects that are pretty much close to the numerology there is biblical numerology Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the kind of religious rituals that you would have had for, um, say, you know, consecrating ground, are then sort of overlapping with the kind of rituals that you would have as a numerate for making numbers, making a place safe. So, so that actually I found dovetail more than a than a badger guide. Okay, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. so here we have Westminster Abbey. And um, it appears as if, you know, they're going to be safe there for a while, but part of the protections are still wearing thin. But the reason we're in Westminster Abbey is because it's time for Billy to have his epiphany. Oh, now, yes. Things, things have been leading up to the point where I was actually terrified that he was William Shakespeare. But we dodged that bullet. <laughs> we dodged that bullet, William yes. Blake. He's William Blake, which is actually really cool. Which is actually really cool. I don't know if you know Blake's poetry. I know Blake's part. poetry a little bit. I've actually seen a few of his his own illustrated pages. Yes. His mind was a very interesting place to be. Apparently so. And if you are, are careful, you will see references to the way that he thinks. I mean, there's a, there's a very clear reference to it because when they flee Westminster Abbey after some of the protections wear thin, one of the places that they pop to seems to be almost like a replica of Blake's poetry. Right, with, right. With angels and the eye of God and, and all kinds of, th- of, of things happening. And they, and they talked to Sir Isaac for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, that, that was one also real moment which seemed to happen. I'm, I'm actually not quite sure what kind of space that happened in, whether he went to the past or whether he went to his own mind. I'm, I really wasn't quite sure. But he was there for a little while. And then there's a small reference to one of his, um, one of his most famous poems. Um, at the very end of the book, which I will get to in a bit. How am I doing for time? <sighs> I'm getting there. We're, we're, we're almost there, folks. We're almost there. We're almost there. So now the final point is that um, we need to just hop back quickly to see what Jenna's doing. Because Jenna, while, while Dom has been trying to, to sort of train Jenna how to use her numbers, he's also been aware that numbers don't react to Jenna in the usual way that they react to most numerates. They kind of almost slide off her or avoid her unless she invites them in and he he doesn't really have an explanation for it and she doesn't know what's going on either but when she is left behind after um the napier's bones is assembled and he rushes off with napier in hot pursuit uh Arithmos says he's going to take her to an artifact that he believes is going to help her to use her particular style of numeracy so off she goes <clears throat> Um, and she goes to this place where there is... Um, By the way, do you notice Arithmos changes names when, when, uh, when it goes with Jenna? No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Okay, not yet. not yet. No, that's after. That's after that bit. Okay. Sorry. Moving on. <laughs> um, so, so basically what happens is that there is a, a, like a, a, a heat 
or sort of a collection of stone or whatever, and a cat sort of paws at it. This this cat, <laughs> I'll get I'll get point about the cat a little bit. The point is the cat uncovers this kind of journal manuscript, what have you, which is written by Heisenberg. Heisenberg, because things were just weren't weird enough yet. Exactly. So what it unfolds is that. Um, the cat, which is kind of a bit of a Schrodinger's cat, um, <laughs> is helping Jenna develop her quantum numeracy skills. And, and by the way, with the addition of the cat and the whole Schrodinger's, th- this book is not subtle, people. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and and a, a, a agglomeration of numbers comes to assist Jenna. And this is a female, because arithmos is very much a male agglomeration in the sense of... Well, it didn't, like, have, it didn't have to be, but it was certainly coded that way. Yes. But then quanta appears, and quanta is very much coded female. Yeah. And quanta helps um, Jenna to sort of crash course, um, learning how to use her skills. And there's a point where Jenna's really scared about, you know, all the time that's passing and what's happening with Dom and she should go and help. And, and Quanta's like, well, you know, you can actually manipulate space and time so you can go to whenever they need the help. So um, so she kind of stays there for as long as she can to, to figure out how to work this stuff. And and then what, what happens is that she kind of travels, when she travels closer to where they are, she knows that she's near, but she doesn't know exactly where they are. Uh, which is, again is not subtle and certainty principle, <laughs> but <laughs> but but at that point, um, Dom and Billy have flashed across to another safe place, which is the reconstructed Globe Theatre in London. Now, here was a bit that I found utterly hilarious, but it shows you what this book does to you. Um, Billy, as he comes in to um, as they come into the theatre. He says that um, it's rumored that Shakespeare was a numerate, and they think he might have had the power to make himself an adjunct, but there's been no word of him actually turning up as you know being hosted by anybody. But then he says um, that his sort of evidence that Shakespeare was rumored to be a numerate is that um, the 46th word from the beginning of Psalm 46 is shake. And the 46th word from the end of Psalm 46 is spear. Mm-hmm. It's actually true. This is in the King James Version. Yeah, it's it actually, actually true. true. Yep. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm freaked out now. <laughs> anyway, I think, I think I read about that first in a book that Mar- Martin Gardner wrote back in like the 60s. I mean, Shakespeare has a number of, of numerate coincidences surrounding his, his plays and so I'm much. Telling, Shakespeare alone is like you could write you could write fantasy novels. Forget about Tolkien. You could write fantasy novels just based on Shakespeare. Oh, of course, of course. Um, and and you're right. It's just it's just and, and especially because he too is still in that era of science and magic and philosophy and religion all just sort of blurring together. Right. So it's it's rich rich soil. So anyway, by by virtue of Shakespeare's numeracy. Um, and because the, the Globe Theatre has been so lovingly and accurately um, reconstructed, the stage is actually a protected area. So they're able to go up on the stage and um, Napier's still flinging various animated statues and so on at them. And they're safe on the stage for now. And by now, oh, by the way, I, I must say that reminded me so much of that Doctor Who episode. Which one? Do you remember? 
the one, the one with the Globe Theater, which when they went back to Shakespeare, and there were these witches, and and they had to find the right name. Okay. It was more words than numbers, but it was the same kind of, of atmosphere. Shameful admission, I haven't seen that episode of Doctor Who. That was in, that was in season three. Don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so um, so yeah, Jenna re- reappears. She has her abilities. So she actually, by, by this time, by the way, Napier has actually appeared in the body of Jenna's mother, snuck up on stage and walloped Dom across the back of the head and grabbed hold of the bones. So there's a sort of a, a fisticuffs. Oh, oh quick thing we should note. The, the thing that has been revealed that if Napier, the adjunct, gets hold of Napier's bones, the artifact, then he will be able to actually resurrect his own body. Right. Because there, Napier's bones you. are his own bones and then that would unlock all his powers, etc., etc. Right. So, so in that moment of confusion, Jenna, I think it is Jenna who actually moves them all. No, or, no, the, the, the box, the, the bones actually, um, because everybody's trying to grab, they spin randomly and everybody ends up at a beach for the final um, showdown. Oh, yeah. Yep. So both Napier and Archimedes become embodied. They actually like, come out of Jenna's mother and they actually appear in their bodies. Um, fortunately for us, clothed. And <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this is like magic. Magic's convenient that way. And then a pod of dolphins turns up. And we should have mentioned that they had earlier made a reference to, to um, the numeracy of, of, of dolphins and whales and cetaceans in general. And said that the, the whole beaching phenomenon is linked to the death of a numerate. And it, it might be uh, a willing death or it might be an unwilling death. But there's something about... Um, the cetaceans beaching themselves in order to absorb the numbers from the numerate as he dies. Yeah, and it had to do with like how many, like 52 dolphins beached themselves and one numerate died and he was 52. It was the years. Yeah. And I was so, like, eh. <laughs> but it was, it was basically, because when you first read about it, you're like, what is that? And then you realize, oh, it's supposed to foreshadow this. So um, Jenna has this fight where she basically overpowers Napier quite easily. And his consciousness sort of comes out as numbers from the top of his head, and the dolphins eat up the numbers. And in that act of, of, of doing that, by the way, Billy also becomes embodied. Um, and the dolphins die. But by this time, Jenna doing all kinds of weird stuff and she's actually sort of multiplied herself several times Mm -hmm. so she's there's several jennas around the dolphins die and then they're also resurrected and they swim back out of the ocean leaving behind themselves still dead so they're like multiplying events as well as multiplying persons going Mm -hmm. on so she's out of control and she's like you know i can't do this i can't do this and her mother who by now is back in her own mind basically says, you know, you can do this, I'm proud of you, I'm your mother, maternal pride sort of thing. They have a moment, she gets herself together, regains control, and and then there's this very brief, because it's, it's quite abruptly, there's this very brief moment of additional exposition where Jenna basically says, okay, I'm in control now, and Dom realizes he can't see any numbers anymore. And she says, well, you know... Um, the ecology has changed and now we're going to get the quantum universe having macro effects in our universe. And at this point, all the readers scream, what do you mean by that? 
Where's yes. the sequel? <laughs> but um, but yeah. So things things have changed, and 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 it really that's how it ends. It ends with them on a beach, Archimedes, William Blake in their bodies, the dead body of Napier, his numbers eaten by the dolphins who are now dead and rotting on the beach. All how many of them are there? There uh, were a number of them. I don't there recall quite, the specific number. I can't remember how many, but there were a lot of dolphins, and and um, and Dom and Jenna and Jenna's mother. And that, and it just ends off there. And you just think to yourself, wow, this was a lot to take in. This was a lot to take in. And that, that is where I gave my main criticism. I rarely say this about a book, but this is a book that needed to be two books so that we had a little more time for unfolding things. So many times I say a book is bigger than it needs to be or has more sequels than it needs to have. But this is one where we could have spent more time. We could have spent more time and, and had a bit of time to ease down after the ending and so on <laughs> and just absorb things a bit well and i have to say i've, I've been developing a theory of endings and and mm-hmm. that's overstating it immensely but um i i remember i was reading some short fiction and then i went back and then i happened to come across a, a story of ursula Le Guin's in which she wrote a story and it was i think it was a novelette and I could see where a lot of authors today would have ended the story, but she mm. kept going. Uh-huh. And then I could see another point where a lot of authors today would have ended the story, but she kept going. <laughs> uh-huh. And the thing is, she played out the consequences. She didn't just take it to a moment of change or a moment of decision. Mm-hmm. She took that moment of change and she took that moment of decision and then she worked out the consequences. And right. I realized how rare that is. Mm-hmm. Actually, and, and again, I see it more in short fiction than in novels, but this one was one where I was like, either you'd better have a sequel or you haven't worked out the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, uh-huh. I enjoyed this story. This is a fun story to read. I, want, I, would, I would see this as a TV series. This, this could have like real lost type potential. Because well, you can spin out the story, it's not so- Sorry, go ahead. Well, with the CGI today, you can totally do that flocks of numbers oh, thing. Of course. I want to see the numbers on screen. There's that visual impact of those numbers is going to be so amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, you really get, there's lots of action, there's lots of suspense, and, and you could, there's, and to tell the truth, if I were to put it into script, I would cut out a lot of the exposition and have people just wondering what the hell's happening. Yeah. And, then, and then let it just sort of unfold a bit because when it's visual, there are things that you don't have to be explaining, first of all. Yeah. But, but um, you know, just, just sort of spin things out a little bit and, and just have them coming back for more, especially the whole thread of Jenna having this, this different power. Uh, that's, that's something that, that gives a nice satisfying punch at the very end. When you could see a lot of, like, the way TV series are, especially, like, in the last couple seasons, where there's, you know, there seems to be a comfort level with blending, like, cop procedurals with fantasy or history, like, yes. grim and, and stuff like that. and this is right in the world. That would be this right up that alley. Yeah, so anybody out there who's involved in the TV industry, who actually listens to our podcast... <laughs> yeah, all... You need, to, you need to pick up this book and have a look at it. Yeah, take a look at it. And so one of the things that, that it really reminded me of, I reviewed a book earlier this year for Strange Horizons called The Lives of Tao. It's by Wesley, I think, Wesley Chu. And forgive me if I got that wrong. Um, but it, uh, it's from Angry Robot. And the, it also is kind of a thriller. 
and it also has a hero who is invaded by another consciousness. Uh-huh. So it mm-hmm. ends up starting very much the same. You're in Meteor Res, and, um, and this uh, older consciousness loses one host, has to go find another one. But in Lives of Tal, the person he finds is like this total schlubby software geek. <laughs> and he has to go about making this schlubby software geek into a, a Bond hero. Oh, fantastic. So that takes up two-thirds of the book, right? <laughs> and then well, You don't have a training montage and done? <laughs> no, the training montage is very long. But again, you get a lot of exposition. You get a lot of Tao explaining. Tao is the older consciousness. Explaining like other people he's been... Basically, you get Tao's perspective a lot more than you get Billy's in this book. Right, right. Um, but of course, Lives of Tao is more obviously set up for sequels. This mm-hmm. actually appears to be a self-contained narrative, which, again, given that I read it as an urban fantasy, the fact that it wasn't hitting me over the head with the fact that it intended to be a 12-book series, <laughs> I kind of appreciate. Yes, yes. And I do I do love standalones. Even if you are going to have a sequel, I do love that little possibility for an exit point. Right, right. So, no, maybe this is it. Maybe this is all I have to read, and now I've got it, and we're good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, people who enjoy Lives of Tao, I could easily recommend this to, by the way. Um, you know, in a if you like X, you might like Y kind of way. <laughs> yes, yes. And then the, so, but, okay, so that's the good part, but uh, how do you feel about Jenna and Ruth and not passing the Bechdel test? Ooh. <laughs> well, I want to discuss that, but first let me, let me, let me give one last little piece of sugar. Okay, yay. I did, in fact, say that um, I did reference William Blake's poetry and mentioned that there was a reference to the very end. And the very last couple of lines use that term, that word, that phrase, um, the world in the grain of sand. Yeah, that was beautiful. And, and that, that, that was very, that was a nice hit. And I, I, I noticed it because at that point I said to myself, what is it with, with SF and British poets? <laughs> um, I mean, you have Tim Powers in Nubis Gates, you have Douglas Adams, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, you have Dan Simmons' Hyperion. There just seems to be this thing where it's like, I'm going to resurrect a long dead English poet and they're going to be part of my story. Well, the other thing is I've, I've noticed I don't think there's any single poem that has generated as many SF titles as T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Ah, okay, okay. And don't ask me to name them off the top of my head, but there are a whole ton <laughs> we are of aware there back to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, okay, so, so back to our, to our Bechdel test. Well, first of all, one of my little notes here is I wish that the author had taken time to give Jenna's mother a name. No, her name's Ruth. I missed that. Where was that? No, it was, it was in there a couple times. No, her name's Ruth. <gasps> oh, dear. But when I started reading the end, where all the action was, he kept saying Jenna's mother, I Jenna's know, mother, yeah, Jenna's I was surprised mother. by that. I'm like, she has a name. And, and maybe that's why I forgot her name was Ruth. Maybe it was like, oh, Ruth must have been her flatmate because clearly this <laughs> Jenna's mother person is someone. Yeah, I was know. like, why are you typing Jenna's mother over and over when you've got a perfectly, you gave her a perfectly good oh. form, you know, did you assume that we would all forget? Well, um, yes, obviously, because I did. <laughs> well, the wrong way around. I, I forgot that her name was Ruth. I remember that she was Jenna's mother. Um, so, yes, so that's a little bit of embarrassment for me and my powers of reading closely. But it oh, does I've, show I've been showing up enough. Fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it does show that, when, like I said, when you get to that bit where the, this, this action 
action at every point and everybody's name is being called but Jenna's mother. Mm-hmm. Jenna's mother is literally referred to each time as Jenna's mother. It does, in fact, kind of re, re, I don't want to use the word reduce, but it, 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 it just she makes her a role and not a person. Mm-hmm. And she bar- and she never has any, well, she, she doesn't have any agency, and at the point where she could have a little bit of agency, she doesn't get a name. Yeah. I mean, the, Jenna's losing control, and she basically comes in and says, well, you know, I know I ran off, and or I should, we should mention a bit about the whole um, her mother's been missing thing. One of the earlier bits in the book, um, Dom explains how he kind of, um, you know, went away from his family when he was quite young as well, when he was a teenager, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is that if you're enumerate, because you see the world so differently, because the numbers are always calling to you, and, and basically because most people will think you're insane, most people tend to, I guess, have these moments where they just go off from their families or go off from the from the normal environment so that they can chase down the numbers, gather mojo, and just become part of this different world. So um, Jenna's mother had disappeared, and there is she was dealing with, yes, with feelings of abandonment and so forth, but there was also this underlying explanation that, well, you know, if your mother had been, um, you know, experiencing these challenges, that numerous experience, it's not your fault. This is just something that happens. So then the whole bit about at the end where um, Jenna's mother, yes, <laughs> um, kind of says to her, you know, I am your mother. I'm proud of you. You can do this. It does have significance because that has been Jenna's arc, that she's been dealing with the issue of her mother having abandoned her and and feeling as if she can't handle this. Mm-hmm. So, so I can understand psychologically why it was so important for her to have that, that moment. But at the same time, I thought that for a, for a situation where Ruth had been basically um, mind-raped for the majority of the book and, and kept under control, she bounced back out of that pretty darn quickly mm-hmm. um, um, to, to be there for Jenna. And I'm not saying this is bad. It was actually very fortunate for all concerned because Jenna was really losing grip of the universe. But there was an aspect, as you said, to which it felt as if Jenna's mother's story got shortchanged. Quite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there could and that that was one of the things, you know, when I talk about oh, it should have been two books or it can be a TV series. That's the kind of thing I want to see expanded. Yeah. And not only that, I need to see well, two things. Minor characters in general get shortchanged in this. Yeah. They're actually there are actually very few named minor characters, and even if you don't name a minor character, one of the things I appreciated, for example, with um, Shadow of the Torturer, last last week's um, last sorry last fortnight's um, podcast, mm-hmm. is that you could have an unnamed minor character, but they would do something so so vivid and so complex within the scene that it was enough to let you know that this was a person who had a life, who had loved ones, who had, you know, an occupation and all kinds of stuff going on that had nothing to do with you. Yeah, and it made it easy to remember. I mean, yes. again, the vividness of Wolf's writing made it such that, that I would remember things like, you know, even if I put it down and walked away and then came back, you know, mm-hmm. weeks later, uh, that there were things I would remember because uh, they were so vivid. Yes, yes. And it does it does sort of add bulk, it does add words, but it also adds to the world building. And 
one one might argue that if you're making up a completely uh, made-up world, like the world of Shadow the Torturer, where, which is a, a sort of future dying earth scenario, mm-hmm. as opposed to a contemporary, people know Utah, people know Canada, people know Scotland, England. Maybe maybe the temptation is to sort of skimp on the background richness of it. Because it's not as if you have to bring an entirely different and new society and people to life. Mm-hmm. But there are other ways in which I find minor characters are very important. They do add to the vividness of the reality of the experience. And they also do have a function in grounding the main characters. I appreciate that because of the particular type of plot, these characters were the Save the World characters. Mm -hmm. And I also appreciate that they weren't annoying save the world characters you know, <laughs> yeah. come across you come across somewhere it's like my power is limitless i can do anything and i will do everything and and it's just a little too over the top mm-hmm. so so they did have limits and they did they did mess up and they did get injured and all that was fine but they were just so very central throughout as if nothing else was happening in the world yeah and and that and that gave me a slight sense of i don't know if dislocation is the right word but it it all it actually felt the way he kept talking about as a numerate how he can see these numbers then nobody else sees them. It honestly felt as if they were a bit in a parallel world exactly. that we couldn't even see them. We couldn't even see what was happening. Right. Yeah. So so I would say if I if there were a TV series, I'd want more minor characters. And for heaven's sakes, let's have some named women in there. <laughs> yeah, and there were really were only two female characters. Quanta, um, Quanta, Quanta well, was female. Okay, Quanta, not non-human, but you know. yeah. Okay, if you throw Quanta in, then it actually does Quanta's in, then it does actually pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the other thing is, you know, the the main female character Jenna numbers react differently to her. I was like, really? Oh, that didn't actually bother me because the implication was that she had a superior and, and, and higher skill. Well, because <laughs> um, she was the first, she was special. She was the first to actually be able to to handle this sort of quantum numeracy. Yeah, and I guess that gets back to some of my my innate dislike of the whole "you're special because of your heritage" thing in fantasy, which you know. Oh, okay. I and. Usually, I, I totally give it a pass, and I give it a pass for this book too. I, I, I again, I enjoyed the book quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. but it's something that I just notice a lot. And mm-hmm. and again, in this case, you know, Jenna was special because of her heritage, because her mom was a numerate, and blah blah blah, and she's going to do this amazing thing. But I'm like, you know, because I do math, math <laughs> a lot. Numbers aren't any different for me than they are for anybody else. <laughs> Oh, okay, fair enough. I kind of, I kind of saw it uh, from a different perspective. As it, as things were getting closer to the end, I was actually afraid that Dom was going to be gifted with some extra special world saving power, and um, that Jenna was because there, there was this interesting bit, kind of mid book, where Jenna sort of fleetingly thought about pursuing him romantically, and then decided, nah, got you got Billy in your head. That's a little too freaky. Yeah, that was actually <laughs> and, cool. And, um, and, you know, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, is it going to be a, a save the girl kind of thing and we'll mm-hmm. be romantic together after all? And then to me, they actually kind of flipped the script and they gave her the, the, the super save the world power. Yeah. And, okay. Um, no, I won't lie. You're right. That was cool. Yeah. So, so no, props, props to the author for that one. I will, yeah. I'll definitely say. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, and it was interesting reading the, um, 
the interaction between them when they were when they were having their attractions and so forth, because definitely the whole uh, romantic entanglement under severe conditions of severe stress is definitely a trope. Oh yeah, of, of literature in general, um, which which I actually um, which I actually find interesting because. There's been a lot of debate back and forth about, um, you know, girl cooties in SF and so on and, um, and romance in SF. And there are just so many darn books with, written by men that do have some kind of love interest in there. And they're never seen as romance. But if there's a slight bit of romance in an in SF book written by a woman, somehow it's like, oh, but it's all romance. And, you know... I, I feel sometimes as if I want to break out a piece of software and do a word analysis and see exactly what percentage uh, <laughs> has been devoted. I am deadly serious, woman. No, this I'm, thing is actually troubling me. You because, are so right. You are so <laughs> freaking right. I mean, you know, and, and, then, and the thing is, there's nothing wrong with either. I appreciated the fact that basically Dom was an extremely lonely individual who um, didn't have the support of his family and who I could see. I mean, it's, it's just sort of like, remember I kind of mocked Shadow the Torture where the guy just like used to fall in love, drop the hat yeah. within 24 hours. Um, usually seemed more for the purpose of the plot than for the purpose of anything else. Mm-hmm. But I also acknowledge that he had grown up in a kind of an all-male, almost monastic scenario. So it wasn't a stretch to imagine that he would just sort of go head over heels for every woman that he saw because he just really didn't see a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similarly, you know, you can construct a scenario in which you can understand that Dom, Dom is like, well, you know, this is another numerate like me, and she's female, and we're in this tense situation together. So again, it, it does kind of make sense and all fall out like that. Although now, and, okay, so now I'm having a, a brief thought about the shadow of the torture, and Severian was so entirely uninterested in the women in the brothel. Mm-hmm. And yet he was, he had, again, that tendency to fall head over heels in love with these women that he would just see, um, especially um, the girl who was trying to rip him off. Uh, uh, yeah. What was her That's name? not a bit about attainability. Well, I guess, I guess there's part of it, but then, I, you know, again, Severian was just so much more interested in the ideals of things, maybe, than the physical reality of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. a little more insight into the character than I'd had before. Um, but but yeah, but in a way, in a way that also makes narrative sense because you can do a lot more with something that gives you opportunity for yearning, and 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 will will they won't they? Than than you can do with with something that's like oh okay fine we'll hook up you know that's that's <laughs> that's narratively dead. <laughs> yeah yeah fair fair. But but I do but I do raise it because as I said, you know here was especially in the first half of the book, quite a strong thread of romance, romantic interest. Yeah. Um, which, um, and again, in, which, in, an urban fantasy model would also set you up to expect that. Yes, exactly. Um, it would almost be bizarre not to have some sort of, some sort of reference to that. So, so yes, I, I do, I do think that, I do think that what I, what I really do like in this book is a sense of genre blending. This is we always come back to this the whole question of where's the line between science fiction and fantasy. I try not to, but okay, yeah. 
<laughs> right <now. laughs> sorry, sorry, apologies. But in a sense that, you know, here, here we were talking about this book, and you were like, okay, it's like urban fantasy. And I was like, yeah, and then it gets to Scotland. For me, it starts to feel a bit like a folktale. Um, and then and then there's the whole, to me, even even the, the historical kick that comes in here. Oh, even yeah, yeah. That, that, is, that then takes on a slightly, I don't want to use the word steampunk. No, no, there's nothing, not I, there's nothing about this book that struck me as steampunk. <laughs> but, but still, the references to the Napier and Shakespeare and Blake era were sufficiently strong that they carried a, an additional flavor into the book. Mm-hmm. That was not just urban fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that level of blending between subgenres to make the reader question a bit and to make the reader uh, un- un- unable to predict really what's going to happen. Although, again, in, in defense, urban fantasy sometimes has very strong folkloric and historical roots in their, in their world building. That's true. That's true. It, you yeah. know, when you're dealing with immortal whatevers, they've often had historical encounters that turn out to be based on really solid research. Yeah, yes, that's so, true. So, okay, but moving on. Yeah, but yeah, you know, it, it is, it's in this book particularly with the numer- numeracy, it's a very uh, genre blending. Mm-hmm. So, for me, the bottom line is, I would just love to see, this is a very well thought out system, the whole system of numeracy. I really would love to see more of it, whether it's, whether it's in a visual medium or a sequel or what have you, because there's just... It's rich water for more stories. It really no, is. I, I agree with the caveat. Mm-hmm. And that's that because the ending was... You know, the, the whole book had been going at a breakneck pace, and the ending did too. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't any follow-up because of where it chose to end. Yeah. I didn't get as much of a sense that the author truly worked out the implications of what a quantum mechanical universe means that I would have liked to. And, and that's informed strongly by the fact that I've been dealing with Greg Egan for the last three years. Okay, go on. And, and basically, you know, quantum and, I'm probably, I probably would be exactly the wrong reader to read a sequel of this anyway, because let's assume that, that he does, you know, if you were to write a sequel of this where Jenna and her quantum mechanical numbers start to spread out as compared to, you know, Dom and Napier and the, the more traditional numerical systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, quantum mechanics is not magic, but of course in this mm-hmm. universe, everything is magic. Right. Mm-hmm. Or everything numeral is magic. So convincingly integrating your real quantum mechanics, which is weird, with the traditional numeracy in this book, which is already weird, <laughs> would be a hell of a challenge. It would be, but you know, I think he gave himself a little out. How's that? Um, basically, the implication was not that the quantum universe was going to take over the contemporary um, world. But that some there'll be some things happening on the macro level. So when you say some, that means that you get to pick and choose what happens. But again, I, I think my my issue is more I loved the idea of the climax being going to a quantum mechanical system. That was a brilliant idea. And I, I seriously I've like never seen anyone do that. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mad props to Daryl Murphy for such an original, original idea. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as soon as you bring up Heisenberg, mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, as a core science fiction person and a physics major, that carries mm-hmm. a whole ton of baggage. Mm-hmm. In this book, it didn't pay off, and I'm okay with that because, again, it was a self-contained novel, and he chose where to end it. Mm-hmm. But where he chose to end it doesn't necessarily give me the payoff that I want to see when when you start talking about Heisenberg. Mm, okay, okay. And again, especially with Greg Egan, he does a lot of stuff with dealing with the the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics and how would you control for that and what what does quantum physics mean in the real world? Then he wrote a whole novel called Quarantine and blah 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 blah. Um, you know, I, I've come to expect quantum physics to be handled more that way. So bringing mm-hmm. it up in the context of something that's a little more urban fantasy has has the potential to be what I consider kind of more magical hand-wavy, but then again, everything in this universe is a little more magical hand-wavy, so, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. But it would probably be a little unsatisfying to me. We can test that. We can test that. But you know, there's another option. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is is wide enough and broad enough that a sequel doesn't have to take part chronologically after this book. Oh yeah, no, no. I would I would be really interested to see what Napier was doing kicking around in the nineteenth century. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, you know, like a, a, a either a Victorian steampunk thing or a gaslight era. That would be fun. And um, oh, what was the I wasn't even I wasn't even thinking that far back. I was I was even thinking more in terms of. Um, parallel stories again. You know, explore the the story of Jenna's mother. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, give give you know, her own story. Um, Dom Dom left behind uh, a sister, eleven mm-hmm. year old sister. What if she suddenly started realizing that she was numerous as well? Right. Or or and and then decides she's going to track down her brother because you know we can help you. I I know what this is. You know, and so on. That sort. So it's they're ju- they're just all kinds of possibilities in terms of. Some of the the side stories, the side characters, even the guy who had the hockey puck, who had just enough talent to see the numbers, but not really, really work with them, who was sleeping on the streets. Yeah, you know? he could easily read a short story. So, so yeah, I think I think that there were there were plenty of of little um, digressions that could have been made, and and yes. Maybe we should be grateful that he was disciplined because we wouldn't have a standalone otherwise. <laughs> right, and but, again, you know, again, it's a fast-paced novel. It's easy to read. It's easy to keep turning the pages. You know, you could do a lot worse than reading this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and and one other thing, I have to give Daryl Murphy a shout out um, for his uh, fleeting reference early on to uh, Donald in Math Magic Land. It's a, a Disney video that was put out, I don't even know. Oh. It would have been the 60s or the 70s, but I saw it in the 80s when I was like in third grade. And okay. I loved that thing. And it really did stick with me. And it obviously sticked with him. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, um, I, I actually, um, speaking of, you know, um, the kind of the little hits that you said, little references, I really got quite fascinated by some of the sports history aspects as mm. well. So, you know, I, I, I really have to say that there were so many kind of pillars of research holding up this story 
that you really had to respect. You have to respect what he's doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No question. By the way, how is cricket for statistics as compared to baseball? Do you know, you need to ask Cheryl Morgan. Oh, okay. Because okay. I, I, am a, I, am a, I am an emotional cricket watcher. Okay. <laughs> I, it's my team losing again. Oh, look, they pulled off a win. I'm happy. So <laughs> I, I, I tend to know more names and statistics. Okay. And more like really incredible games like the famous Tide Test in Australia or like things where, you know, when they say, do you remember where you were when X happened? Well, okay. I remember where I was when we bowled out Australia for seven to six runs. <laughs> if you say <laughs> so. Test. Sorry, I know this means nothing to you. Men lost to <laughs> me in third form physics. I was laughing. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Cheryl Morgan is the one. But she said to me at some point, and she can correct me if I misquote her, that um, baseball is more fascinating from a statistics point of view. But cricket... Where cricket has the edge on baseball is when you look at the actual um, play with the bat. Mm-hmm. You know how baseball has like a, a diamond, the confined space, and and, a, and you sort of can't hit the ball behind you. Yeah, you have more variety of strokes in cricket. Oh, you have more um, creativity in terms of how you set your field mm-hmm. because you can hit you can hit three sixteen in any oh, direction. Yeah. Interesting. And it means you can see some incredible strokes. You can see some incredible feeling. Just, 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 I know just sort of running between the wickets doesn't look like much. But until you've seen a fielder, like, will edge on to the wicket, throw the ball in and, and get the bales, like, you know, exploding into the air. Until you've seen that, you know, you really haven't lived. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. I'll grant you that. <laughs> yeah, as you, as you can tell, I, I I do like a certain level of cricket. So I'll just <laughs> shut up now. <laughs> okay, but in the end, I think we can we can definitely say you know this is a this is a fun book to read. I thank you for for uh, recommending it to me. Um, my pleasure, and um, thanks as well to Daryl Murphy, who I met at World Fantasy Convention in Toronto. I um, I'm I sort of. I sort of uh, allow myself a, a quasi-connection to Canada because my first degree I spent at University of Toronto and then I, I worked for a while there. So I was actually there for good grief, five, five years okay. in Toronto. And there's an aspect to which the same way how I can read a West Indian novel and feel a, an extra frisson of, oh, this is also lovely and familiar. Mm-hmm. I also get that feeling when I read a book by a Canadian author where there's certain references where I'm like, yeah, I know what's going on here. Yeah, no leaves. <laughs> so, so yes. So definitely, um, I, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, for that, we will, we will for the moment, put Napier's Bones behind us. Uh-huh. And next is? Next, we'll be talking about a classic from 1884 that's Flatland by Edwin Abbott, I believe. Yep, Edwin Abbott. And then we'll contrast that or compare it to something much more contemporary, a short story from Yoon Ha Lee called The Shadow Postulates, which can be found in her debut collection, um, The Conservation of Shadows. Marvelous. <laughs> Looking forward to that, yes. And as always, thank you for sticking with us, and we hope you've enjoyed the episode. Mm-hmm. And tune in in a fortnight.